This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. China unexpectedly reduced two signal interest rates as policymakers try to inject oomph into an economy weighed down by the country's strict zero-COVID policy. The medium-term lending rate was lowered by a tenth of a percentage point to 2.75%, its first cut since January. At the same time, China's Statistics Bureau disclosed disappointing new data. The rates of retail sales growth and industrial production both slowed in July year-on-year. Meanwhile, Japan grew by an annualised 2.2% in the last quarter, as it slightly relaxed its COVID restrictions. Ukraine said that Russia was unsuccessfully trying to advance on several towns in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine. It reported heavy shelling and fierce fighting in the region, which has been a key focus of Russia's invasion. Shelling was also reported in the Kherson region, where Ukraine is attempting a counteroffensive. China's army said it had organised military drills in the sea and airspace around Taiwan, in response to a group of American politicians visiting the island. The members of Congress are visiting Taiwan two weeks after a trip by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of their House of Representatives, caused a diplomatic rumpus between America, China and Taiwan. Ed Markey, the Democrat leading the five-person delegation, said he wants to encourage peace across the Taiwan Strait. Iran's foreign ministry said that Salman Rushdie and his supporters were solely to blame for the attack on Mr Rushdie in New York on Friday. A spokesman said that no one has the right to accuse Iran of responsibility. In 1989, Iran issued a fatwa calling on Muslims to kill the novelist. Hadi Matar, the 24-year-old accused of attempted murder, pled not guilty on Saturday. Russia pledged to foster closer ties with North Korea. In a letter to his counterpart in Pyongyang, President Vladimir Putin told Kim Jong-un that the two countries would expand the comprehensive and constructive bilateral relations with common efforts. The leaders' relationship bloomed after a meeting at a summit in Vladivostok in 2019. William Ruto, Kenya's deputy president, appeared to pull ahead in the country's presidential election according to preliminary results reported by Kenyan media. Earlier, it had seemed that Raila Odinga, the opposition candidate endorsed by Uhuru Kenyatta, the outgoing president, was in the lead. The counting has been slow, and some officials have scuffled amid high nerves. Germany's energy network regulator said the country must cut gas use by 20% to avoid shortages this winter. The government, meanwhile, said public buildings will turn down thermostats in winter to 19 degrees Celsius, equivalent to 66 degrees Fahrenheit. The looming crisis stems from curtailed flows of Russian gas to Germany, seemingly in retaliation for European sanctions on Russia. And fact of the day, 507. The number of guns found in passengers' hand luggage by America's Transportation Security Administration in 2021. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. India celebrates 75 years of independence. 
Atop the Red Fort in Delhi on Monday, Narendra Modi will inaugurate the 75th anniversary of India's independence with time-worn theatrics. Yet this year's celebration will be relatively muted. Not because there is nothing to celebrate. The rupee's power may be at a low, but Mr. Modi is consolidated as never before, and some economic indicators are perking up. But for Mr. Modi, looking back is awkward. He has a long record of disparaging the republic's early decades, suggesting that previous leaders had been too accepting of both European and Islamic influence. Only, quote, new India commands applause. One new thing for this anniversary is a government-organized campaign called Hargar Tiranga, or, quote, a flag in every home. The Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, a Hindu nationalist organization where Mr. Modi started his career, once loathed the national tricolor, which nods to Islam as well as Hinduism. But though the flag is now in vogue, India's founding principle of pluralism is under attack. Under Mr. Modi's leadership, Islamophobia has become more prevalent. The Year of the Taliban Monday marks one year since the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan. In that time, the economy has collapsed as foreign powers have restricted aid and cut Afghanistan off from the global banking system. And the Taliban are back to ruling with theocratic tyranny. Men are harassed for trimming their beards. Girls are barred from secondary school. New rules dictate that women should only leave home when, quote, necessary. Yet there is a group of Afghans who are in one sense better off than they were a year ago. Villagers who lived on the front lines of the conflict, in provinces such as Helmand and Kandahar, are safer than they have been in years. A new report by International Crisis Group, a think tank, suggests violent incidents in the 10 months to mid-June were down 87% compared with the same period a year earlier. As winners and losers emerged, though, the question is whether that stability will last. Russia's War Olympics Few Western countries will attend this year's Moscow Conference on International Security, which begins on Monday. Instead, Russia has invited representatives from China, India, and a host of other countries from across Africa, Asia, and Latin America to hear its vision of a, quote, multilateral world free from America's yoke. The audience may be receptive. Globally, 28 countries lean towards supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while a further 32 have remained neutral. For the first time, the annual event also coincides with two military extravaganzas. The Army 2022 Forum is a chance to sell Russian weapons. 45 defense contracts worth $6.8 billion were signed at the last exhibition, according to Russian state media. The Russian-founded International Army Games are a more sporting affair. Military personnel from countries such as China and Iran compete in combat exercises, including a, quote, tank biathlon. Russia's army might do better to focus on the actual fighting in Ukraine, where it faces the prospect of a counteroffensive in the occupied city of Kherson. Britain's Never-Ending Crises Britons have spent yet another weekend sweltering in a heat wave. A drought is afflicting large parts of the country. But the thought of what is coming this winter is grabbing even more attention. Life is increasingly unaffordable, and energy prices help explain why. 
The Bank of England predicts that annual inflation will rise to around 13% this October. At least half of this increase will be driven by soaring energy prices. Estimates from Cornwall Insight, a consultancy, suggest that households' average annual energy bills could grow from £1,971 or $2,380 now to £4,427 in April. Talk of how to tackle the crisis has dominated the race to lead the Conservative Party and to be the next Prime Minister. On Monday, Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition Labour Party, will lay out his own proposals for alleviating the pain, including a ban on raising energy prices. No politician has yet got ahead of the problem of surging bills. Despite the heat, the prospect of the winter is chilling. Edward Gardner and the Berrigan Philharmonic Big bands can thrive in small towns. The Norwegian port of Bergen, despite its population of just 280,000, outplays much grander cities in the musical arena. The Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra had a solid reputation when Edward Gardner, an English conductor, arrived in 2015. Since then, its global renown has soared. On Monday, Mr. Gardner and his ensemble will appear at the Edinburgh International Festival. After performing Richard Strauss's decadent musical drama Salome, the BPO regularly dazzle in modern opera, Vikinger Olafsson, an Icelandic pianist, will join them as a soloist. The orchestra has burnished Mr. Gardner's career. In 2019, the London Philharmonic Orchestra appointed him as its principal conductor. And when his time in Bergen ends in 2024, he will not abandon Norway. In February, he was named as the next music director of the Norwegian National Opera and Ballet. Mr. Gardner has made plain his love of his adopted musical home. In Norway, he has said he learned, quote, to love the importance of an artistic institution being embedded within a community. Daily Quiz Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 hours BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Monday. Which American sitcom ended in 1983 with the most watched TV finale ever? Finally, here's the quote of the day from B.R. Ambedkar. Freedom of mind is the real freedom. A person whose mind is not free, though he may not be in chains, is a slave, not a free man. Freedom of mind is the proof of one's existence. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening. <laughs>